0: I'm so grateful to serve alongside these men. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Grateful. So grateful for their place. Some of you will remember this. Some of you perhaps not. It happened some time ago. 1988 was the year. Immediately, some of you said, yeah, I don't remember that at all. I came way after that. A, A Bible scholar and former NASA engineer named Edgar Wisnot predicted that the rapture of Jesus Christ, of the church, the return of Jesus and the rapture, would happen that year, 1988. In fact, he wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Now, for those of you who are curious sorts and like to read the end of the book and like to know the rest of the story, that did not happen. I just want to make sure you are aware of that, okay? That did not happen in 1988. He actually wrote two books. He wrote that one and he wrote another one called On Borrowed Time. He studied the Jewish calendar. He studied the festivals. He looked at all of the the timeline that we understand in Scripture. He added dates with prophetic... uh, text from Daniel and Revelation, and he surmised that the rapture of Jesus was going to happen September the 11th, 12th, or 13th of 1988. Uh, It was to coincide with Rosh Hashanah. It was absolutely, in his heart and in his mind, a guarantee. In fact, so much so that he uh, took out almost all of his life savings, printed these books. He sent 300,000 copies of the book 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Happen in 1988 to pastors and to churches all across North America. He sold, get this, he sold 4.5 million copies of that book. And, and it's interesting to me that it took on a, a life of its own. People began to kind of get behind it and momentum took place. In fact, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, TBN, began, that they, they they canceled their regular uh, programming and they began giving instructions for your unbelieving family members of what they should do if they happen to find themselves in a world where lots of people have disappeared. And now I, I you know kind of in my cynical mind began to think how many unbelievers were watching TBN back then? I don't know. that's another story. That, that was interesting. there was a, another uh, slant to this. It became financially viable. Bible Prophecy News wrote this. A man named Charles Taylor planned his annual pilgrimage to the Holy Land to coincide with Wisnot's prediction. And, and listen to these words. We, we, uh, with the possibility of being raptured from the Holy Land as an incentive, only $1,975 from Los Angeles or, get this, $1,805 from New York No return ticket necessary. (laughs) Think about this. People were buying a ticket to the Holy Land with the idea the rapture is about to happen. And here's what was sold in that sales pitch of this trip. We will stay at the Intercontinental Hotel on the Mount of Olives, which is uh, a place where you can get a beautiful view of the Eastern Gate and the Temple Mount. And if this is, in fact, the year of our Lord's return, as we anticipate, you might well ascend to glory within feet of the Lord's ascension Himself. What a sales pitch. Church, what is that? What is that but wishful thinking? You you don't have to be very much of a Bible scholar to understand that the Bible says that the Lord will return like a thief in the night and that no man knows the hour, and to Wisnot's credit, he gave it a three-day window. He didn't pick the hour, but he was wrong. In fact, he wrote another book uh, the year after, and it didn't sell quite that many copies. People said, see there, there was no truth to it. There's this sense of wishful thinking in all of us that we would desire to know the future. Would you agree with that? Wouldn't you love to know what's going to happen? Wouldn't wouldn't you have loved to know on Friday what the lottery numbers were on Tuesday? Don't answer that somebody somewhere won $1, 1.6 billion dollars this week wouldn't you how would you use it if you knew what was going to happen in the future well we've seen the movie back to the future some would use it for their own game they would they would bet on sporting events and they would turn it into personal gain uh, others might be fearful if they knew the future and some say i'm glad that i don't know the future but regardless the uh, the Lord's return I want you to know this regardless of when that will happen I, I'm thankful that Lord has not shown us that and I don't know that the Lord would ever show us that and I believe that it's merciful that he doesn't and the reason why is because we can live our lives with a sense of confident hope and expectation in him and not worry about all those specifics in fact let me share with you before we get to our text the words of W.A. Criswell he was a longtime pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas Texas. He said, There must be great kindness and goodness of God in thus veiling all of the future from our eyes. For if a man knew what the morrow would bring, he would live in constant fear and foreboding. Listen to these words dying, he would die a thousand deaths before dying once. Fainting, he would faint a thousand times under a stroke that has not yet been delivered. God hides the future from our eyes that we might live in confidence and hope. You know, the whole concept of time. I'm intrigued by the fact that God doesn't light up the whole path. If he did, it would scare us at times to death. When it's hard to see what's in the distance, God will light up the next step. A lamp never illuminates the whole path, but it guides our feet to take The next step. And that's what James would tell us. As we continue in our study in James, I invite your attention to James chapter 4. Open your Bibles there. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. James is such a straightforward, forthright epistle. He has one goal in mind. As you're turning there, think with me. James is writing to a group of scattered, messianic Jewish believers and to us. And he's wanting to paint a picture of real faith. He wants you to know this is what real faith looks like. He wants you to know that when somebody has genuine faith, this is how it responds to a variety of circumstances in life. And, And it's beautiful how James moves from one subject to another. And in every subject, he applies faith. He says this, if you remember back from the beginning, it's kind of recapping these messages. He said when you have real faith, you can stand against trials that come from the outside. In fact, he said you can even count it all joy when they do come. James says when you have real faith, you can handle temptation from the inside. We talked at length about that. He he said when you have real faith, uh, don't Have to be delusional about your spirituality, thinking that you're spiritual when you're really not. Scott Pittman shared that with us and and helped us to see it. In fact, it said that we would be humble before the Lord. James went on to say, when you have real faith, you will not be prejudiced at all. You will not see people in any other category but lost or saved. You won't look at the skin color of a person. You won't look at the ethnicity of a person. You won't look at their socioeconomic status. You will not be prejudiced in in any way when you have real faith. He went on to say, when you have real faith, you can control your tongue. Causes me always pause and say, I wonder if people check their real faith at the door when they post on Facebook. That's another message for another day. But when you have real faith, these things will happen. So James begins here in James 4.13 with these two words, Come now. Or he says, Look here. I I want you to look back up this way for a moment. It's interesting. There's only two places in all of the New Testament that this phrase is used. It's used right here in 4.13. And just a few verses later in chapter 5, verse 1, he'll say, Come now. Or look here. What he's saying is, Listen up. It's beautiful because this phrase is used all throughout the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah said, come now, let us reason together. The prophets would say, people of God, come now. So I say to Hardy Street Baptist Church, look here. Listen up. You see, James is pointing us to a very important truth, and we don't need to miss that. He says, look here. And so as we look at this, let's share together with James in reading the Word of God, verse 13 and following. Look here, you who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town, and we will stay there a year and do business there and make a profit. That, that sounds logical, doesn't it? It sounds like life. I'm making a plan. I'm putting my steps together. I, I'm going to go to this place. In fact, it's interesting to me, they named the time. We say today or tomorrow. They named the place. We're going to such and such a city. They named the action, we're going to engage in business. And they put together the goal, we're going to earn a profit. So what is James' great concern with this? Why would James say, look here? Why would James say, pay attention, listen up? They excluded God from their plan. As we look at this, we're going to look today at this matter of time. And time is such a a curious thing for us to consider. As they excluded God, James is upset with this. They're planning without praying. They're presuming in their planning. They are forging ahead without faith. They're arrogant, if you will, in their approach. They're looking at life in a selfish way through their schemes. You see, time belongs to God. And when we begin to say that I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that with my own time, we better back up and watch out. You don't know what time holds. James would say people with real faith don't do that. He would say they include God in the planning of their future. He would say that they include God in a prayerful concerning of what happens tomorrow. Prayerful concern of what happens next year. They don't exclude God. <coughs> Be honest with yourself this morning. Don't you do that? I mean, really, don't you plan your day? Some of you have planned today, and you've not given thought to what God thinks about the rest of the day. Some of you have planned your day even while you were sitting here. Some of you have written on a bulletin somewhere, where are we going for lunch? I know it's there. I bet I could take up bulletins and find it somewhere. Some of you are thinking about what's next. What have I got to do this afternoon? What do I have to do tonight? What do I have to do this week? What is going to face me on Tuesday? When's my next vacation? When's our next break from school? What are we going to do for Thanksgiving this year? What about Christmas? And we begin to plan things in this natural, normal way, and we never give rise to the thought that God needs to be included in those plans. I've got this figured out. God's there. I mean, He's everywhere. And because God is everywhere, surely he's with me, and so I'll make my plans. Hold your place, if you will, there. We're going to come back to this, but turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And I want to illustrate this. You see, again, James is taking situations in life and applying real faith to them. And here is one of those places. In Luke chapter 12, we're going to see just that very thing. Played out in the words of Jesus. Kind of interesting for us to consider. Verse 1. Meanwhile the, crowd, the crowds grew until thousands were milling about. It says that they were even stepping on one another. I think that's kind of humorous. There's this crowd clamoring to be near Jesus. Dear friends, don't be afraid of those who want to kill the body. They can do no more to you after that. But I tell you. Whom to fear? Fear God who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. He's the one to fear. What is the price of five sparrows? Two copper coins? Yet God does not forget a single one of them. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. What's he talking about? Why would he bring this kind of thing up? Have you ever been embarrassed To pray for something you felt like it was too small to worry God with I mean you you you've got friends or family members who are in the ICU and they're fighting for their life or they're going through treatments or they've lost a job or they're facing some kind of calamity or maybe a relational breakdown with a, a prodigal child and you go, I I don't know that I can bother God with this little thing. I mean, I'm not sure what it would be in your life. Maybe my my dog has a limp, or I I don't know, there's some issue with something that's going on in your home. Maybe you've got a a leaky faucet, and you say, well, that's too small. I I don't need to trouble God. I, I think Jesus here is saying that no matter large or small, what your needs, what your requests, what your desires, what your hurts, what your burdens are, I care about you. I mean, think about all of the hairs on every head all around the world. God knows all of those. And the complexity of the knowledge and wisdom of God ought to be mind-boggling to us. Somehow, I find myself thinking this way. If I've got something big, then God's got to muster up power to answer that big prayer request. And if it's something small, then it's just almost too small to bother Him with. And God says, large or small, I care for you. Nothing is too big for God. Nothing is too small for God. And I, in my care and concern for you, want you to come to me. Continue with me, if you will, in verse 8. I tell you the truth, everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth The Son of Man will also acknowledge in the presence of God's angels. But anyone who denies me here on earth will be denied before God's angels. You see, all of life comes down to me, is what Jesus is saying. All of life boils down to this question Who is Jesus? It boils down to what have you done with Jesus Christ? You know, there are times when we read and study Scripture and it seems like God's given us this general approach. As we look at our passage here in James, you would say, okay, God's saying I need to include him in my planning. I need to pray a little more. And we almost think God's lowering somehow the standard. He he is not at all doing that. In fact, he is heightening it to an incredible place. Look with me, church. Look at me. I want you to hear this. Just like James would say, listen up. He's saying... I desire for every second of every day of your attention and your affection to be squarely focused on me. That means you ought not take a step without asking God to move in that. And there's freedom there, it's not burdensome, it's a joy. It means that everywhere I go, he illuminates the steps. He illuminates the path. And we'll get to it in a moment as we move back to James where he'll say, your attitude ought to be this, Lord willing I'm going to do this or that. Not just to say it, not just give lip service, but to give your heart wholeheartedly to God. And my question today is how many of us truly live that way? How many of us acknowledge God in the mundane, ordinary Tuesday morning or Thursday afternoon times of life? When you're between classes or you're on break at work or maybe you're retired and you're sitting in your easy chair and you're drinking your coffee in the morning and you have no thought of God, nothing more than what the morning news is telling you you has happened that day is of interest to you. And I'm telling you, church, that God's desire and his design for all of us is that today we would begin to acknowledge him in all things. And he says that you would acknowledge me before men, that you would hold me up. Look on a little further as we continue in our text. Uh, Then someone called from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. I mean, it's almost like he, he hears Jesus speaking Jesus is talking about the weighty things of life, about eternal life, about acknowledging God. And this guy says, hey, my brother has scammed me out of the estate, and I want my part of the money. He's turning to Jesus as judge, and Jesus answers in verse 14. He says, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as this? Now, It's almost ironic. Jesus is the ultimate judge of life, but he's speaking to this specific place. And he says, who makes me judge over that? In verse 15, he goes on to say, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Some of us would do well to hear those words, and some of us would do well to underline that in our Bible. The, the, The life that you live does not consist of the things that you own. Money is no basis for life. Jesus said, that's a terrible way to base your life. But tragically, we call that the American dream. We base our life on the scorecard of what we've got and what we can get. And Jesus said, don't do that. And he goes on and he's going to tell us why. And we'll see this begin to all tie in together. Jesus sets into a parable, verse 16. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take take it easy, eat, drink, be merry. Look at the presumption of time. I've got plenty to last me for years, it says. I've stored away so much that I'm good. Now look at God's response, verse 20. God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Your your life, your soul will be required of you. Wait a minute, God. I'm still in my prime. Wait a minute, God, there's a whole lot of stuff that I've never seen or experienced. I'm still healthy, God. And he says, then who will get everything that you have worked for? Who will own what you've prepared, the Scripture says. Isn't that interesting, church? You'll work for a lifetime, and your kids or your grandkids will sell that stuff in a garage sale. It'll go up on the auction block. It'll rust or rot or... Fade away. Solomon in Ecclesiastes called this the ultimate vanity. He said it this way acquire wealth for yourself and then die. You can presume upon the future without God, but you can't plan out a future that excludes God because it doesn't work. In fact, if we go on through what he says about this, God says, I'm the one that prepares. Everything that you have. He says, look to me. He tells them to consider the sparrows, consider the lilies of the field, and then seek me first in everything. Some of you need to get off the treadmill of trying to acquire and trying to plan and trying to scheme and strategize and put all these things in place and recognize that God desires for you to walk humbly before him in trust, in prayerful dependence, in confidence that the future is in his hands. I love the old song that said, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future, and I know who holds my hand. You see, Jesus Christ has your future planned out. And as we think about this, we have no idea what tomorrow brings. In fact, let me be fatalistic for a moment. Everyone look this way. Tomorrow could be the worst day of your life. Pastor, why in the world would you say that? Okay, let me go to the other side. Church family, tomorrow could be the very best day of your life. There may be something unexpected coming your way tomorrow that you have no idea about. Several years ago, I read a book called Between the Lightning and the Thunder, it was written by a youth counselor. And he was at children's camp with their church. And every year at children's camp, they ran an obstacle course. And he had the course record. He'd done it for many, many years. And so it was always the the thing that he would run it last. All the kids had run it. Other counselors had run it. The pastor had run it. And it was his turn to run it. And the very end of this obstacle course, there was a big vat of mud. And you had to dive into the vat of mud and crawl under some things and come out victorious on the other side. and and hopefully you've done it in a a reasonable amount of time. He ran the course in record speed, and he got to the vat, and he dove into the vat of mud and immediately realized, I can't move. He he began to think in his mind, I'm going to drown in this mud. He could hear laughter through the mud of all the people that were standing around. Somebody very quickly noticed that he was not moving, that he was not coming up, and they rushed in and they eased him out of the mud and they saved his life. He's now a quadriplegic. Between the thunder, excuse me, between the lightning and the thunder, he broke his neck. He didn't go to children's camp and say, hey, I think my life will take an altering course. He never dreamed when he ran that obstacle of course that was going to happen and folks what I'm trying to tell you is you have no idea what tomorrow holds I, I drove this week a number of hours we drove back from Pigeon Forge and then we had to make a, a a running trip back up toward Memphis Tennessee to move our daughter into her new apartment and on the way back there was a vehicle that had flipped several times on the side of the road and, and I just envisioned the drivers a brand new pickup truck beautiful pickup truck seconds before but now it was a mangled mess of metal And I began to think of myself, where was he going? Where had he been? What was he planning on doing? Maybe he was on his way to a football game. Or maybe he was on his way to a family event. Maybe to a wedding. I don't know what he was doing, but life had changed in an instant. And I don't want us to be fatalistic. I don't want us to be fearful. But God doesn't tell us the future. And James says to us for this very reason that we ought to say, Lord willing, this is what I'm going to do. Because we begin to bring God into the equation of our lives. And when we do. We can have confidence and peace. Think about this. God is an eternal God. All throughout Scripture, I I don't have the time to go through this, but think of Job. Job said, my life is like the lengthening shadows. My life is like grass. (laughs) It produces, it burns up, and it blows away. James goes on in our text in just a moment and says, your life is like a vapor, like a morning fog. It's just, it's gone. And what do we do? It's interesting. We want to prolong life. Now, I understand that. You want to eat healthy and do right and and live a positive life, and those things are good. But but some of you have got this mindset, I'm going to live to be 110 in perfect health. I'm going to lay down, go to sleep, and wake up in glory. The problem with that is this. How many 110-year-olds do you know that are perfectly healthy? It doesn't work. It's not reality. But God is eternal, and life is a vapor, and it does not matter. Hear me, it does not matter if you are 8 or 88. In the eyes of an eternal God, neither of those is very long. I want you to know that we're eternal as well. You were created for all eternity, and you will exist eternally forever and ever, somewhere. The choice is then up to you. What will you do with Jesus? Will you spend it in heaven with God? Will you spend it in hell separated from the very source of life? You see, all of us need to acknowledge God in our day. I want to move forward as we think through this. It means we don't have to live in constant fear or worry or anxiety. We do not own our time. God owns time and he gives it to us as stewards. We're to manage it. Every single one of us has the exact same amount of wealth on a daily basis in this commodity. You get the same 24 hours. You get the same seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, up until the point that your time is up. But on a daily basis, what are you doing with God, God's time? The simple mundane activities of life are there, and all of a sudden things change. Life is precious and fragile. You, you sit across the desk from a doctor, and he looks and says, you know, I see something that I don't like. And maybe it's ALS or maybe it's cancer. You you find yourself at a place where everything stops on a dime. And what are you going to do then? Dr. David Jeremiah said of these people in his commentary on James that they didn't understand the complexity of life. It's arrogant to say this is what I'm going to do because life is complex. He went on to say they didn't understand the uncertainty of life. It's presumptuous to say, this is what I've got all figured out. And and students, let me tell you, some of you have got plans for the future. You better make sure that you include God. As you study, as you prepare, is it bad to make plans? No, the Bible says you need to count the cost of what you're going to do. But include God in those plans and recognize that you hold this time as a, a management, a stewardship of all that God has given you. He owns time. They didn't understand the complexity of life, the uncertainty of life, the brevity of life. And then ultimately the nature of life. If I had to outline it, that's the things that I would want you to get. You would consider this, that God owns time and we are to manage it. Life is like a shadow, scripture says. My days fly faster than the weaver's shuttle. Man is born of a woman, how frail is humanity, how short is his life, and how full of trouble. We blossom like a flower and then wither like a passing shadow. We quickly disappear. I read a poem this week that just stirred in my heart as we're moving kids out of the nest, as we see some that are moving into careers and marriage and and the next phases of their life. Listen to these words and see if they resonate with you. When I was a child, I laughed and wept. Time crept. When as a youth I dreamed and talked, time walked. When I became a full-grown man, time ran. When older still I grew, time flew. Soon I shall find in passing on, time is gone. God gives it because God owns it. It all belongs to Him. Back to James with me, if you will. Very quickly, and we'll wrap this up. Look in verse 15. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Not just empty words. When he says, Lord willing, don't just say it. I, I hear people that hedge their bets. It's okay to pray in faith God heal someone and not just say, Lord, if it be your will, heal them. Lord, we long for this to happen and pray. Like it all depends on your prayers. But trust knowing that it all depends on God. And as you plan, work as if it all depends on you. And trust knowing that it depends on God. You can't do a thing. You're dependent on your very breath. You're dependent on him for your heartbeat. And so make your plans but say, Lord, I want you involved in every single step. If time is in God's hands, fine. I'm going to trust that whether I'm 5 or 95. And I'm going to live for him. You see, he's raising the bar. Look at verse 16. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting, the Bible says, is evil. And he goes on, verse 17, it says, Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do, and then not do it. Why would he include that, Pastor? You walked in here and... Life is normal. I'm making plans for Sunday school and church. You may have made plans last night and got up and gotten clothes picked out to come to church and got everybody ready and lined up to be here and try to get here on time. And you went through all of the normal routine and you're planning out your week or your month. You're planning out the the holiday season. But now you know better. James said, come now. Look here. Listen up. Your life is like a vapor, and you better not make plans without including the Lord. Don't make plans as a parent without the Lord. Don't make plans as a grandparent without the Lord. Don't make plans as a student without the Lord. Don't make plans as an employee or as an employer without the Lord. Bring the Lord into the midst of all that you have to do this week and wake up tomorrow morning if He gives you a measure of life and health and strength and breath. If He who never sleeps nor slumbers wakes you up tomorrow, wake up and thank Him for it before your feet hit the floor and say, Lord, here I am reporting for duty. What do you want? I want to make my life count you know this well with any commodity there's really three choices you can waste it you can spend it or you can invest it Same's true with time you you can waste time I, I know a lot of people these days that are wasting a lot of time they're sitting around fretting about things that may or may not ever happen They're they're glued to Fox News, and they're they're just passionately concerned with all that's going on. Or they're on social media, or they're playing video games, and they're wasting time. You you can spend time. You you can hang out and spend time with your family. I spent time with family on the road for hours. I'd like to think that some of it I invested because I invested in conversation. We were quiet for a lot of it. I said, you know what, that's hours that I'll never get back. Why don't you begin to invest your time in things that are important to the Lord? Like passing on your faith to others. Like making disciples that make disciples. Like getting on board with the the mission of our church to reach our neighbors, the nations, and the next generation. I I love this text of Scripture. It's not one that you need to run past quickly. You need to slow down and read it and, and see that God owns time. And He gives it to us as a gift. Final word, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, there's no other time better than right now. Bible says this is the appointed time. Today is the acceptable day of homecoming. I'm going to invite our musicians to come. We're going to sing together a hymn of invitation, a decision time for you. If you need to make a decision for Christ, you come today. If you need to be saved, come today. If you need to repent of presumptuous planning without prayerful consideration, repent. If you need to join our church, we would love for you to come. As Lord leads, you let him have his way. Let's stand together and sing.